This is exactly right. Welcome to my favorite murder, the podcast. <laughs> it sure is for this new America. It sure isn't. <laughs> but, I mean, but we'll do our best. Is this the old America <laughs> that we read so much about? I mean, what the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> it just started off like it. Nothing's ever going to be the same again. No, it's true, no. and it's amazing. And good. well, yeah, there's definitely so many good parts about it. Yeah, like. We keep being shown the bad parts, but the good thing is then we're also, if you're looking correctly, you're also being shown the good parts. That's right. There is progress being made in, in, we were just talking about, Jordan and I were just talking about how in the, say, fast, past 48 hours, so much has changed. So many things have happened. So much information has come yeah. over the wire. I get all my information through an old teletype. <laughs> Or and, you just, wait, maybe you're uh, accidentally just watching The Wire this whole time. Instead oh my of the God, news. I love The Wire. Stringer <laughs> Bell, save me. Uh, <laughs> that's why it's so stressful. Um, but no, there's just, yeah. I mean, guys, I think you know better than anybody that we don't know how to talk about socio-political, race-relational things. Um, we didn't go to college as we've said multiple times. <laughs> I mean, that's number one. I mean, we're, we're both educated by social media yeah. as, as everybody is these days. We're all reading the same articles. Right. We're all looking at the same reactions. Yeah. Um, so this will be more of a, uh, we're just kind of repeat back a lot of things that you've probably already heard, but you know, it's, we're, we're here as two acknowledged, privileged white women who want to support and are doing everything they can and acknowledge that we're not, we don't know shit and we're yeah. doing our best to know shit. And because so many of our listeners think fucking God want to know shit too. Yeah. We're having a conversation with you guys about it. Yeah. Or maybe even what a lot of us are learning is that it's not a conversation. We need to zip it and listen to people who we haven't been listening to mm -hmm. all of our lives and start actually acknowledging the only way to get rid of these white blind spots that a lot of us have or this complete ignorance of other people's experience mm -hmm. is to stop talking about ourselves and putting ourselves in the center of everything and instead step back and be the observer where you can actually learn. And Definitely. I think that whole thing that happened um, when everyone put up their black square oh, and everyone, you know, the, the intent behind that, mm -hmm. I believe there was a good intention of stop talking about your dumb shit and pay attention to this incredibly important movement right. that's actually exploding in the most real and unbelievable way right in front of us. But then that got turned into like you like it's an excuse for white people to not have to participate right. in this discomfort and so I think there was a nice kind of 
fix on that because I think a lot of people were like, got it. That's not the way you, you know actually have to like? keep participating and you have to keep listening. Yeah. And what you're doing is just being asked to instead of giving your opinion or being like, I'm so sad and I'm so upset. Who gives a shit? Yeah. If you're sad or upset, let's hear from the people that this actually really affects on a day to day. Let's hear from the people who are constantly in danger because law enforcement is violent with with black people and people of color. You know what it felt like to me um, was like we're all on a boat, okay, and the white people are running from side to side on the boat to be like, don't tip, don't tip. We have to run to this side. We have to run on that side. We're making the boat tip on that side. The people of color are in the middle of the boat being like, can you guys all calm the fuck down and just calm stand in the middle with us and stand here with us and stop fucking tipping the boat unintentionally but you're doing you're causing the t- boat to tip Does yeah that make sense? it absolutely does but i think what is impressive is before what would have taken four years yeah. for the running side to side to stop and a lot of arguing of like well here's a, some dumb political stance that actually isn't related and doesn't make sense right instead of any of that there's just people are learning this very quick like oops that was a mistake and the discomfort i think this is Maybe for me personally, what I've learned in the last four years of doing this podcast, mm-hmm. which is basically the the theme of this podcast is mistakes <laughs> in many ways. Oops. Sorry about that. But, right. But what I've learned is the pain of your mistake and the shame you feel because you made a mistake and you got called out as privileged, racist, um, blind spotted, whatever mm-hmm. it is. You should be say thank you for that pain because Mm. it is nothing compared to the pain of somebody watching a family member get shot in front of them because they didn't they did one they didn't do the right thing or they whatever they've just basically been profiled Mm -hmm. it's nothing compared to the pain of being in constant fear of your life it is just an ego personal thing that you can absolutely get over easily yeah and all you have to do is say sorry and i'm going to do better the end and stop talking about yourself that's all every as we talk about ourselves for (laughs) oh seven minutes straight every tweet i've put up that hasn't just been a retweet of someone smarter than me who knows more than me I've deleted because I you I don't even realize how fucking self-centered it sounds even when I'm like fuck this and fuck that and I'm a you know and here's what I think it's like yeah you don't realize how much it is about you while you're when you're blabbing your mouth until you fucking see it and you're like shut up you I don't get a fucking voice in this I get to support other voices well yeah and The whole point of social media is blabbing your mouth and making it about ourselves. But people are making the switch. People are turning it, turning it around. People are, I think what I'm seeing is people getting that in a real way and being like, oh, right. It's no one wants to hear my dumb joke right now. Or sometimes they do. I mean, there's people being very funny and on topic in my timeline and Twitter. Well, I think I love your your the comedic voice is so necessary and you have funny biting things to say that that advance the narrative. But I think people like me, who's just like, I hate Jimmy Fallon. It's like, that's not fucking helping anyone. (laughs) Not going to help. Well, and also that's the, I think that's like kind of the comforting, easy thing where you're like, oh, I'm going to stand back and kind of like cancel people. That'll do it. And it's like, everyone's kind of learning. Essentially, if you can't put your body out next to 
uh, people of color and black people who are protesting. If that's not something you can do, then you have to give money. It's pretty yeah. much that's it. Yep. You have and you also have to stake your claim because as some brilliant person put it in the one millionth tweet that I've read over the past, you know, four mm-hmm. days, whatever. Another really great thing that people who can't give money, who can't and won't protest for whatever reason is to call and tweet at and just barrage the people who are quote unquote in charge of making these legislations of you know creating these laws that fucking just completely discount people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged and disadvantaged because of 150 years of you know racism and so you can do something a really this really smart person said it's no longer democrats versus republicans it's the only thing it is now is um racist against anti-racist people yeah and you have to you have to declare your side because with white people could be anything and you so basically you have to just put up or shut up yeah which i think is kind of that is Incredibly fascinating. And I also think that the movement, the action people are taking that is peaceful, quiet, peaceful protesting that at some point the police are just like, and now we're going to tear gas you is proving everyone's point. And it's a point that most white people never had to acknowledge, talk about or think about for up until this moment in history, Mm -hmm. at least in like my generation, you would hear about it, talk about it. We would every once in a while, people would tweet at us of like, you can't, you know, um, talking about jail term reform or talking about this, talking about that, where I I honestly didn't understand where I'd be like, but we want serial killers to rot in jail. That's what mm-hmm. we're thinking. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, no, this overall... Um, right. The, you private, know. the privatization of prisons means that the more people you imprison, the more lucrative your fucking business is. And yeah. so, and, and because of this systemic racism throughout our country, the people who are going to prison are the people who are less, um, who have more disadvantages with money, with education, you know, and they're going to prison. And so it's, it's a system that's, that's put in, that is, you know, racist because our country was built on the fucking backs of black people. Yep. And that's, and now, and it, and it's been, you know, you can't take one piece out of it. It's like fucking Jenga. You can't take one piece out without the rest of it falling. So the people who make money on fucking private prisons are not going to be okay with, you know, with a reform, with, with, um, with p- police reform. They're not right. going to be okay with affordable housing. They're not going, you know, back, you know, fucking f- not 40 years ago, they're not going to be okay with schools being, um, unsegregated. It's just. It's people who are making so much fucking money. It's people who are grabbing money who don't fucking need any more money. Well, also, somebody made that really good point, too. It's this what's so exciting about this period of time, this presence of it, where there's many good intention people um, who don't 
suffer at the hands of police brutality. And Mm -hmm. so kind of it's easy. It has been easy for us to go. I don't know if it's that important. I don't know. It seems like. And then just basically now that we all walk around with a video recorder in our hand, that is our phone. Thank God. And there are people, I mean, we've all seen it on social media, people recording a person down on the ground with their hands uh, zip tied behind their back. They're cross-legged, which is the position that's all a cop needs to do is put them put you down like that and you can't move or do anything my point is that then someone goes up and kicks someone in the face when they're already yeah. down and so that's the kind of thing where for all the people that would be very dis it's so uncomfortable to go oh but i i you know these people mean well and we need the police force and all these things all that fucking shit gets washed away when you see how people are treated when the cops don't like them. Because and they don't. This is, it's shocking. Because they don't get to say anymore, well, just don't resist arrest. They don't yes. get to say that anymore because yeah. the, it is not. Yeah, you and I, we cannot because resist George arrest. Floyd, George Floyd did not resist arrest. He was peaceful the entire time. They have two angles on his arrest. That's right. Two angles on his arrest. He did everything the cops said. Because says, Rodney and, King and was fucking him. crawling away. And we saw yes. that fucking, God, 50, 25 years ago. I mean, yeah. We, it was he naive. was not resisting arrest. But now it's up in your face. It's on, you know, social media. And we're the younger you generation who, who won't deny it. And it's yeah. almost like I fucking hate saying this. But like the fact that we're all on lockdown right now and in this global pandemic and you know it's it's this perfect storm of people who get perfect storm of like we're all it's almost like we've been priming for the past two and a half months to come together and get out there and fucking and show and and protest well and that's what that guy the most so if you live in los angeles you probably saw this clip or somebody retweeted it Mm -hmm. um it's incredible because there was you know hundreds of peaceful i I would dare say silent protesters standing outside mayor eric garcetti's house oh my god it was one of the most mind-blowing visuals i've seen in a while because you couldn't go oh that's so scary or oh they're they're Mm -mm. bad or whatever it was people literally standing and not moving and not talking just standing in front of the mayor's house like so you have to do something huge crowd of people it was really big so quiet and it's a super rich area of L.A. And then the re- a reporter goes and finds a neighbor. So it's this white guy standing there with a mask on. Um, Total stepdad looking like normal guy. And the second the clip starts, I get mad because yeah. I'm like, of course you find this guy that's going to start complaining how he can't <laughs> right, pull out of his driveway. Fox News, too. So you're like, oh, you're going to find the most fucking right. Yeah, well, a Fox News affiliate. Yes. Okay, thank yes. you. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to the network. Yeah. Right. But. She says, what do you think about all these people and what they're trying to she the way she asked the question I didn't love. Yeah. This man then in the plainest, clearest way explains why it's happening and Mm -hmm. basically says when you steal the land from the native people and build a country on the backs of black people and take away all their freedom and abuse them and don't give them equal rights and then you have a president who lets this i mean he basically lays it out Uh, clearly and quickly yes in this way where i was like who are you that's when you start to see that that's the majority. Yeah. That that's your average person on the street. Yeah. That we're all kind of watching these same videos and going, holy fucking shit, we can't, it can't be this way anymore. I think. I mean, yeah. that's what I like to think. I mean, I love it, that. It's so true. But, but for every one of those I see, I see when I see white people 
rioting, spray painting, fucking stealing shit, I I get my blood boils. That's not sure. We're not there to do that. We're there to support people of color, stand behind them, stand in front of them when they are being attacked by the fucking riot police. Yeah. We're support. We're support. Right. There's many people who theorize that's the idea. They're agent provocateurs. They're there to actually do it to make it worse. And everyone, I hope, saw that video of those fucking girls that were spray painting the front of the Starbucks at the farmer's market. That was farmer's market. Yeah. Yeah. And that woman walks up and is like, what the hell are you doing? Give me that. And then they bitch at her. And I was like, those two girls are not the kind of people I know that go to protest. They are something else. Because why the fuck are you doing that? Like, what are you doing? And then if someone comes up and goes, don't do that, you'd go, oh, I sorry. I, you know, you would basically if you were of a certain mindset, you'd say sorry. And they were just like, basically, fuck you. This isn't mass destruction. This is, you know, there's a fucking reason that you should be there. And there are things you can do to be supportive it, it, the same thing happened in the fucking 60s and, and the 70s with the vietnam protest they'd send that fucking fbi and cia would send in fucking you know uh undercover agents to fuck shit up that gave them an yeah. excuse to kill people at fucking yes. kent state to fucking fire rubber bullets and to you know and to make to make the you know middle conservative people hate what yes. they saw and hate us because it's because it's about optics but right what I think is fascinating is you cannot, you can't, it's very difficult now to argue with these optics when there are uh, 50, s- s- like basically they look like stormtroopers yeah. standing at the Lincoln Memorial. What, oh my I God. mean, that visual is just like this. We are now in the dystopian America that everyone's been holding their breath about. And that's why all of this is, I mean, look, and we're just. Again, Mm -hmm. we're just talking about this off social media. We're just talking about this as it comes in and as we're reacting to it. But what's amazing is this kind of you can feel the slow collection of we're not letting this happen here. Mm -mm. We can't let this happen here. And the rest of the world is watching us and supporting it. I mean, that fucking protest in France where they just piled up all those free mopeds and let them, (laughs) lit them on fire. (laughs) The fucking scooters, the electric scooters. You're just like, hell yes. Like, like people all over the world agree with these protesters, agree with this action, agree that this whole situation and the, and, the administration that is basically has been causing it for four years. It has to change. It's crazy it has how to go. four years ago we put out a podcast right after that motherfucking piece of shit got elected somehow. And we're scared and we're afraid of what was going to happen. And suddenly it's all happening at once. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it, this is fucking history. This is it's going to change from here. Yes. Uh, I had a long conversation with my therapist this morning, as I do oh, many, many days a week. Uh-huh. And this is my favorite thing that she said, because I was telling her, I was like, we're so nervous to even talk about this because we don't want to be wrong. And we don't want to say some fucking ignorant thing. You and I we've definitely we've done. Yeah, yeah. Like that. We've done it in the past. Yeah. Or you say something where you're just like, oh, I think I'm just sharing my thoughts. And then 50 people text you of like, ah, yeah, and then yeah. you're just like, then you my first reaction is always like, but I'm not wrong. Wrong, right. And you can't say that I'm that person or where my it's intentions like, are this or my intentions are that she said this, which I love. Do not fear being wrong because regret 
wakes you up to what you're not doing right, Mm. which means you have a mind that can notice things, which means you have a mind that can change and grow. Amazing. And that's the key. So that momentary, I'm not the person I want to be, or I'm dumber than I thought I was, or I'm more racist than I thought I was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, it's, you can track that and then do something about it. Mm -hmm. There are people who cannot, and that's why they can't discuss it. There are people when you experience the rage of the people who are saying, how dare you support black lives matter? That's a person who is so afraid. They're so afraid. They don't know how they can belong in this world and they can't change. And I think that's kind of what a lot of those side of people are saying is how dare you make me question myself how Mm -hmm. dare you make me take responsibility for what i've been doing and getting and benefiting from it's not it's the whole argument surprising it's that whole argument of like well you know i feel like we're starting to wake up of like people who you know with the whole thing of white privilege isn't isn't directed at people who grew up without any um hardships in their lives you know it's not that it's people it's us understanding that although there were hardships in our lives being the color of our skin was never one of them and it always is that for people of color and i think we're finally waking up to that and understanding like even me being jewish it's like but you can't tell by looking at me so i have a fucking privilege Mm -hmm. you know And that somebody wrote this really amazing thing that was being being a racist isn't doesn't translate to anger and hatred and active. Mm. So a lot of people go, I'm not racist because that they're thinking of those horrible people in the South when the schools were getting integrated and they were screaming at children, that little girl that was walking (sighs) in by herself to that school. And they're going, I'm not that person. Right. But. So you're not actively enraged at people of color. It doesn't mean you're not racist Mm -hmm. because what that means is that you have blind spots and issues and things where you don't understand the real world in the way that other people do. And the thing we're talking about at the moment, because the thing that is can't continue is is black is black people being killed by the police because the police can kill them without any repercussions that's all right that's what has to change and basically like the authorities are going not only will we not change it we're going to try to kill more of you totally and that's why people are standing up and going no no not anymore we can't we all watched ferguson held our breath and hoped that that small group of of mostly black protesters mm-hmm. were going to get it done for themselves because no one wanted to get their hands dirty and no one wanted to take responsibility yeah of course but we got to we got to we got to and now that we i think almost like there's something about the pandemic that kind of cracked through yeah. so everyone's kind of seeing this thing where it's just like oh yeah this matters and what how we're connected to each other matters yeah. and whether or not people live or die fucking counts to me and matters yeah and black lives matter black lives matter everyone black lives matter um, should we say, so we're going to put up a bunch of uh, media recommendations on the Exactly Right blog. So go to exactlyright.com if you want to get some podcast recommendations, book recommendations, film, TV, things that you can read to and, and support and try to understand, uh, you know, a little better what 
what your deeply rooted, you know, secret to you even racist tendencies are. And it's really important to look at yourself like that and to understand what you're doing wrong so that you can try to be an ally. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most kind of like, I, I remember this so well, um, when that crazy fucking thing happened on our Facebook page and oh, we yeah. were just like, what? And yeah. it was, we basically had to shut it down because it was like, there was a racist flare up and peep, it was so crazy and we didn't really even know it was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and when we were, I did the very stupid thing of actually trying to argue with people mm -hmm. on Twitter for 10 minutes where it's like, no, it, like we wouldn't do that and we're not like that and we're your allies. And this young girl, I'm assuming it was the person who was in their picture, me going, you, we're not like this, we're your allies. And this young woman, I believe she was a young woman of color who wrote back and said, you don't don't get to say you're our allies. We decide. Right. And that's what made me A, stop arguing and B, go, oh, shit, I'm actually telling people stuff like this. And I don't know these details. Yeah. I should I should know that I should know this. If I don't speak the language, I can't be out here telling people how it is because right. I don't fucking know. I'm this and, and I'm that. Yeah. And it's like. Yeah, nobody wants to think they're that person. Too fucking bad. Just accept it. And now the work is how do we change it? There are so many lessons that to be learned right now. If we, including you and I and everyone who's listening, open their fucking minds and ears and Twitter feed <laughs> and and learn, we can all learn right now and become better fucking people. Yeah. And to, before better you do that, people at, to help to help people. the cause. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then in, in the meantime, if you can give money, give money. Mm -hmm. And if not, there's I've retweeted several and I know there's so many guides out there for people who if you can't protest, here's a list of things you can do. If you don't have money, here's a list of things you can do. I think it's so exciting that those kinds of lists are being made for people. Mm -hmm. The shop Those black owned, uh, you know, bookstores, restaurants, yes. shit in your area where you can support black owned businesses and people of color owned businesses is really important. Yeah, you don't any kind of frustration or, you know, whatever you're feeling, yeah. you don't have to fold in on yourself and collapse because you're having negative feelings. Right. You take those negative feelings, you interpret them as energy that needs to be put towards someone who needs your help and then go help. And you know why? Because fucking capitalism has been. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> let's, all I'm saying is let's weaponize capitalism. <laughs> For yes. people of color instead yes. of against them, which it's been since right. capitalism existed in this fucking country. So you can nice. you put your money in places that can support those people who capitalism doesn't fucking work for. Yeah. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into, whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve. The key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. 
Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens. And don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. So today I'm going to tell you about a really powerful, amazing, badass woman named Ida B. Wells. Great. Uh, she was an investigative journalist, an educator, and one of the founders of the NAACP. Nice. And she's incredible. Um, I got a lot of information from a bunch of different really great podcasts. And so write these down. Uh, one's called A Brave Space with Dr. Meeks. That's M-E-E-K-S. A podcast called Black History in Two Minutes, hosted by Henry Louis Gates, Jr., a podcast called The Humanity Archive by Jermaine Fowler and a podcast called This is Karen Hunter. It's a really great podcast. And in this episode about Ida B. Wells, she talks to Dr. Greg Carr and it's just a really great listen. Awesome. Jermaine Fowler is a really funny stand-up comic also. Oh, okay. It's a good podcast. Um, and then I got uh, articles from the Chicago Tribune, an essay in the Washington Post by Keisha N. Blaine. There's a really great quick video on YouTube. It's like the TED Talks educator. So it's Ted Ed. And it's it's animated and it's um, made by Christina M. Greer. And it's great. It's great to show to kids. I, I really love it. An article on biography.com and Wikipedia, of course. And there's just tons of articles and tons of books about Ida B. Wells that go into her incredible life way better than I'm about to do. But let's start. Okay. (laughs) So (laughs) the given is there's so much. Yeah. There's so much great stuff out there. Right. That's way better than everything we're about to do. Exactly. So here's a little. I think everyone knows that. Here's a little taste and then (laughs) then go dive deep in. And then go. This is the Cliff's Notes. 
This is the Cliff Notes podcast, sponsored by Cliff Notes. <laughs> oh, remember Cliff's Notes? Nope, never even tried to use those. There's, That's really? how little I cared about homework. I wouldn't even do the Cliff Notes. <laughs> I remember people passing Cliff's Notes. If you're young, Cliff's Notes were basically you were supposed to read Silas Marner, but you could get a real thin book and just read yellow. The, it was the Cliff's Notes. Yeah, it's yeah. yellow with the black. It almost looked like um, police. Police line, do not cross tape. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it basically just summed up the book and its themes and all the stuff that you were going to get asked Because we didn't have the internet to look at. there was. It's like Wikipedia. No I feel like Wikipedia is the cliff notes of the it's internet true. age, right? Yes. Shit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so but this is a cliff notes also, podcast. If the guy, if the if the guy that sat in the back row wrote Cliff's notes, if Cliff was in your <laughs> class, because that's what Wikipedia is, it's like you could do it too. You can write Cliff's um, Wikipedia too. That's if you right. Want to. That's right. Okay. So Ida Bell Wells was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi, on July sixteenth, eighteen sixty-two. She's the first of six children to James and Lizzie Wells. Ida's born into slavery, but um, and you know the Wells family as. Uh, as well as the rest of the slaves in the Confederate States when the Emancipation Proclamation was declared about six months after Ida's birth. Uh, the Wells family were decreed free, and that's on January 1st, 1863. So um, after emancipation, Ida's parents were super active in the Reconstruction movement. Um, her father, James, became a trustee of the historically black liberal arts college, Shaw College, which is now Rust College in Holly Rust. Springs. Huh? Say the name of the college, sorry. Rust College. R-U-S-T? Yeah. Okay. Um, he was known for his involvement in politics, as was her mother. They were both really, you know, active in politics. And her father founded a successful carpentry business in Holly Springs in 1867. So they were, you know, this this incredible family. And it was at Shaw University that they sent Ida to receive her early schooling. So, um, but at the age of 16, she had to drop out because both of her parents and her infant uh, sibling died of yellow fever within like a day. Oh, no. Fucking your parents are dead and you're 16 and one of your your younger siblings is dead, too, within a day. That's how insane it was. And so all her siblings were going to be broken up and, you know, moved to different family members. And she's like, no fucking way. They're staying with me. Um, So she drops out of school, finds work as a teacher in a black elementary school in Holly Springs. She told them she was 18 (laughs) and actually was 16. Can I just say that's how I got my nipple pierced? So imagine... That's that's white privilege right there that I was like, I lied about being 18 so I could get my nipple pierced. And she's like, I lied about it being 18 so I could get a career as a teacher and raise my siblings. And yeah, keep my family together. together. Exactly. Amazing. So, yeah. you know, um, so but then Ida's grandmother, who was helping raise the kids, the other siblings died from a stroke. So uh, eventually Wells moves with her two youngest sisters to Memphis in 1883. So. In Memphis, Ida continued to teach, and then during the summertime, she continued her education. And then an incident happened um, when she was 21 years old that was kind of a catalyst for her activism. So on May 4th, um, 1884, she's 21, and she's on a train, and she buys a first-class ticket to get in the women's uh, train area because you can't smoke in there. She doesn't want to be around these like foul, you know, smoking dudes. And, um, 
the train conductor, it's with the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, comes over to her and is like, you need to give up your seat and go back um, out and move to the smoking car. That's where you're black. You can't be in the first the ladies car. And she's like, fuck this shit. I bought my ticket. I'm not leaving. And the conductor, you know, grabs her to throw her out. She bites him. Yeah. Uh-huh. Amen. And then is forcefully, she's forcefully dragged out of the car. She hires a lawyer. She sues the Chesapeake, Ohio and Southwestern Railroad Company for discrimination. She wins the case in the state and then it's sent up higher and it's overturned. So, mm. yeah. but this is something that, of course, you know, hits her in her soul. So then she writes a newspaper article about it. For the Living Way, which is a black church weekly, she writes about her treatment on the train and how wrong it was. And she gets kind of publicity in Memphis. So she continues teaching elementary school, but she starts writing more and more and becomes a journalist and a writer. Mm. And she's offered an editorial position for the Evening Star in Washington, D.C. And she also begins writing weekly articles for the Living Way newspaper. So under her pen name, Iola, she writes articles attacking Jim Crow policies. And in 1889, at 27 years old, Ida becomes the editor and co-owner of the Free Speech and Headlight, a Black-owned newspaper established by the Reverend Taylor Nightingale at 27 years old. And co-owner. Co-owner. As a a black woman. That's right. Did you say 1889? 1889, 27 years old, along with J.L. Fleming. She's just like, here we go. Let's fucking do this. Let's do it. Uh Uh-huh. In 1891, Ida... So she's dismissed from her teaching post by the Memphis Board of Education because of her articles, because she criticizes schools being segregated and the conditions in the black schools. She's, she, you know, argues that segregation means that, you know, black children are not getting a fair education and not getting, you know, the, the type of education they would if schools weren't segregated. Yeah. Um, so she gets kicked out. So they're like, well, then you can't be a teacher anymore. Goodbye. <sighs> Yeah. So she is like, fuck this. I'll concentrate my energy on writing articles for The Living Way and also free speech and headlight. She's, you know, quickly well respected and becomes a well accomplished, successful woman. She's respected among the community. She's in the middle class, which is really rare at the time for, a, you know, a woman. She's not married and she's mm-hmm. a black woman. So that doesn't really happen at the time. But she's also, I think, I think a lot of the podcasts I listen to stress this. She's a very normal woman trying to, you know, she's not a savior. She's dating and she's bemoaning, uh, in her diaries, the dudes she have to date has to date because as soon as they find out how smart she is, they're over it. They don't, they just want a wife, you know? Yeah. So she's the same shit that, you know, every woman fucking faces. Yeah. But in 18 fucking 90s. So sorry, but it also makes me think she must have been such a good writer, like yeah. a naturally, like a natural great writer. Right. If she was that young, had to drop out of school and then basically picked it up to go, this happened to me and it just flowed out of her. Well, I just, I, yeah. And I think she's writing about the time, which a lot of, you know, a, there were probably so few people who had the privilege to do that, to write about what was going on with the, in the black community at the time and to yeah. black people that her having the balls to fucking do that just in, you know, and having passion. And you can, when you read her stuff, it's clear she has passion. Yeah. That she's, it's just, you just don't want to stop reading her stuff. Yeah. So, um, okay. And then the big turning point in her life happens in 1892 
when a close friend of hers, it, she's like best friends with this couple. She's the godmother of their youngest child. It's a black man named Thomas Moss. He's lynched, which, by the way, lynch doesn't mean hanged. Lynch means killed by a mob because of race. So Thomas Moss, he's a family man. He, he's respected in the community as well. And he delivered mail by day, but he's also part owner of the People's Grocery Store in South Memphis. It's in a neighborhood called The Curve. And it's kind of this mixed race neighborhood. And of course, right across or like right down the road from the People's Grocery Store owned by uh, black people is the white dude's grocery store. Mm. Um, and so that it's owned by a man named William Barrett. And it's just, you know, there, there's like a fight that breaks out, but, you know, between these two kids in front of his store and it turns into this whole fucking melee and people are fighting. And it's it's like it, point part of her point is it doesn't matter what started it, but this is the excuse. So um, there is uh, on March 3rd, 1892, an angry white mob that includes the, sh the local sheriff's office, because, of course, you know, they're part of this group. Right. And, uh, they come along and Thomas Moss, along with two other workers from the People's Grocer, Calvin McDowell and Will Stewart, are arrested and jailed. And around 2.30 that morning while they're in jail, 75 white men wearing black masks take the three black men from their jail cells at the Shelby County Jail, take them to a rail yard outside of town and shoots all three men dead with a shotgun in a horrific, horrific fashion that's reported in the newspaper. So um, with so many details that it's clear the newspaper man was there. You know, oh, yeah, Jesus, that kind yeah. of situation. Okay. Um, and so Ida finds out about one of her closest, dearest friends being murdered in this way. She's devastated and she basically becomes an investigative journalist back in the fucking <laughs> 1890s. Yes. She, uh, and puts her own life at risk by spending two months traveling around the South. And she is interviewing people who have had loved ones lynched, who have, you know, seen lynchings happen, who have been, had their lives have been torn apart by it. And uh, she just gathers as much information as she can. And on October 26th, 1892, she publishes her research in a pamphlet titled Southern Horrors Lynch Law in All Its Phases. And she comes to this conclusion and has this stance that it's from what I can tell, it's kind of a new uh, argument, which is that um, what's not being addressed is that white Southerners are using the excuse of sexual violence by black men towards white women as an excuse to lynch black men. But the real reason behind it is that it's black economic progress. So she's just yep. like, she calls bullshit that, you know, this, this black man was flirting with this white woman or they're secretly dating or, you know, he, he made lewd comments at her. That's a fucking excuse because it makes people who think they're not racist say, well, he deserved it. He shouldn't have done that. When really yes. it's because you opened a competing grocery store across the street from my grocery store. It's because yep. you've become middle class. It's because you know, uh, Emancipation Proclamation happened and we're fucking pissed about it. And so right. we're going to think of any excuse to go back to those days. Right. That allows us to murder you because without a fucking trial, without any, you know, without with accusations being just lobbed at anyone. It's just she calls bullshit on it, essentially. Yeah. 
So, of course, her pamphlet is incredibly controversial. A mob storms the Memphis office of her paper, the Free Speech and Headlight. They destroy everything, the printing press, the whole fucking building. But fortunately, Ida was uh, out of town at the time. And so she's unharmed, but she's warned that she could be killed if she ever returns to Memphis. So she's like, good riddance. Goodbye. Fucking later days. Goodbye. Yeah. And she vows never to go back to Memphis again. So instead, she relocates to Chicago, where she continued to distribute her pamphlet. And in 1895, she follows up with a with a like de- more deeply researched and detailed pamphlet. And it's a hundred page pamphlet called The Red Record, which is famous. And in it, she described lynchings in the United States since the Emancipation Proclamation. And it covers black people's struggles in the South since the Civil War. And, you know, she's in Chicago now. So it's, you know, being told to people who... Uh, can be sympathetic to what she's arguing. So yeah. the, the Red Record explored the high rates of lynching in the United States, which is at its peak from 1880 to 1930. She says that during Reconstruction, most Americans outside the South didn't realize, you know, how much violence was going on against black people in the South. And she urges black people in these high risk areas to get the fuck out of town to save their families. Mm-hmm. Um, she again connects lynching to sexual violence and shows how this this myth that's perpetrated of this black man's lust for white women is being used as an excuse to murder black men. That's um, what happened for the Tulsa race massacre. Exactly. Exactly. The boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Right. So many of those stories. It's yeah. Crazy. And it's just a fucking excuse because you're. Uh, you don't want black people to succeed. Right. So she includes pages of graphic accounts about specific lynchings. And she shows that lynching is a tool of white, white supremacy to prevent social advancement of black people. So the red record has far reaching influence and, um, and so both of her pamphlets, Southern horrors and the red record, uh, the northerners are, horrified by what they read and they didn't really know supposedly you know about these lynchings and they kind of believed what they had heard out of the south which is that you know this person deserved it and it was you know uh what's it called uh vigilante retaliation just- retaliation yeah. and vigil- vigilante justice which she's trying to tell everyone it's not so um so, you know, she starts getting really involved in um, civil rights. She leads the opposition against the ban. The, so in at the 1893 World's Fair, World Exposition, uh, there's a ban against African-American exhibitors. And she leads the opposition against that. And then she starts doing speaking tours in Britain and to campaign against lynching. And they're like sympathetic. And they're like, yeah, fuck this shit. What's going on here? fucking crazy country (laughs) like they are right now and they're shocked by the reports of lynching in america already in 1894 before she leaves the u.s for her second visit to great britain um william penn nixon who's the editor of the daily interocean which is a republican newspaper in chicago which by the way republican doesn't mean the same thing then as it means now it's kind of switched it's the opposite it was the only major white paper that persistently denounced lynching and she tells Nixon about her plan tour and he asks her to write for the newspaper while she's in England like an account of what's going on so she becomes the first African-American woman to be paid a paid correspondent for a mainstream white newspaper wow 
So she tours England, Scotland, and Wales for two months, addresses audience of thousands. You know, there's these rallies and among the British and, um, she gained extensive recognition and credibility and an international audience of white supporters of her cause. So back home in Chicago, she marries a prominent attorney, civil rights activist and journalist named Ferdinand Barnett in 1895. And from then on, she's known as Ida B. Wells Barnett. But I fucking love this. And and in one of the podcasts I listened to, they point out how so many black women back then hyphenated their names which is so fun. like it's so common these days but back then it's like no she was already this you know she was not going to just change her last name she had done right. so much good and so much work and she was a known you know journalist but yeah. she just hyphenated it and added his last name and fucking kudos on him because it sounds like he was like championing championing his wife as a badass who could go out and do her own shit and didn't have to just have kids and stay home he must have been into it. I mean, that's yeah. like, it's a great reminder that that type of man also exists. Exactly. Or it's like, yeah, I want you to be this badass. That's, right. that's part of why I'm in love with you. Yeah. It's the coolest. And it seems love like it. she waited to get married till she found that person, which is so incredible. Um, he had founded the Chicago Conservator. It's the first black newspaper in Chicago in 1878. And so she began writing for the paper and uh, later acquired a partial ownership of it and um, as- assumed the role of editor there. And, and they had uh, Barnett had two children from a previous marriage. And then together they had four more children, Charles, Herman, Ida and Alfreda. So, After brutal assaults on the black community in Springfield, Illinois in 1908, which is a whole nother fucking conversation, uh, Ida is like, we have to take action. So the following year, she attends a special conference for the organization that would later become known as the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and is considered a founding member. But even to other activists and other founding members of the NAACP, our fucking Ida is a little too much of a spitfire. And she's a little like, this is taking too long. You're not organized enough. And she's like a bit of a, like, oh, how can I say this? She wasn't going to wait around for permission to do it. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. 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 She definitely had that attitude. I mean, that's the problem with politics, too. As a right. lot of times, it's like we have to go in and then you have to kind of assimilate and make sure that everybody, quote unquote, likes you. Right. So that you do, so that you agree and that you get support. But oftentimes, I watched a whole I watched a whole thing on Twitter this morning about this where it's like and that's how oftentimes through politics that this black movements get stalled out because they're being told if you just wait a little longer and that happened with um, the abolitionists where in the beginning they were saying we'll get rid of slavery but slowly and over and I literally I just watched this video this morning so this is it's on my Twitter page i retweeted it. it's a brilliant uh woman her name's Brittany cooper and she is a uh, britney dr Brittany cooper she's a phd tracy clayton is the person who tweeted it originally i was just retweeting hers um hi tracy <laughs> and um it's such it's such a good thing but i never thought of that where it's like they were like we'll get rid of slavery but can you just work 10 more years and then we'll yeah. do it slowly so no one gets upset and they were like no do it now it's free the thing everybody where, like, now everything you know you have these powerful people and you have these powerful ideas and by the time it gets through this fucking system it's all watered down and it's all sludge and like we should be listening at point a of the people who are yelling about it and not being fucking polite and not being you know 
conservative about their views. Um, right. And and don't don't let people um, like pat you on the head and let you know that, oh, we're your good friend. We're going to help you out and then never do it. Yeah. Or we have our agenda first. And once that's concluded. So in 1909, Ida B. Wells is the most prominent anti-lynching campaigner in the United States. And among other accomplishments, she's created the first African-American kindergarten in her community. She's passionate about women's rights and suffrage as well. And she's a spokeswoman and an advocate for women being successful in the workplace and having equal opportunities and creating a name for themselves. So this is all during the fucking, you know, suffrage movement as well. And she becomes part of that. Wow. So in the years following, she focuses her work on black women's suffrage. And uh, along with her white colleague, Belle Squire, they organized the Alpha Suffrage Club in Chicago in 1913. And it's one of the most important black suffrage organizations in Chicago. And it's founded as a way to further rights, voting rights for all women, and to teach black women how to engage in civic matters and to work to elect African Americans to city offices. So Okay, so they're working on the Alpha Club. And at the same time, the National American Women's Suffrage Association is organizing a suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. They're like, they're the big national fucking, you know, Susan B. Anthony, everyone's on this fucking who was actually a friend of hers. But so right before the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson in 1913, they're planning this big parade and suffragists from across the country gather to demand universal suffrage. And Ida was, of course, planning on attending with her Alpha Suffrage Club. And the head of the Illinois delegation told Ida and her delegates that they wanted to keep the delegation entirely white. So they were mm-hmm. like, all right, well, we're doing this whole thing. It's all for suffragists. We are, we're supporting each other. And the African American uh, suffragists need to go to the back of the parade. And Wells is like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm totally going to fucking do that. And so <laughs> she, she, goes she waits with the spectators in the crowd for the parade to start and as the white delegation from chicago walks by she fucking slips under and is in line with them and she's like what's up motherfuckers i'm here and you're here because partly because i'm here too so i'm I'm with you yeah and you're not sending me to the back that's fucking ridiculous badass so, so awesome. Yeah. Throughout the 1920s, she continues to fight and support causes for uh, African-Americans, including the right to vote, which she uh, didn't even get herself until she was in her 50s. And in 1930, she unsuccessfully sought elective office. And when she ran as an independent for a seat in the Illinois Senate, but she doesn't make it. Um Ida Wells dies of kidney failure in Chicago on March 25th, 1931, at the age of just 68. And uh, she had begun writing her autobiography, but never finished it. And uh, so instead, it was edited and published by her daughter, Alfreda Barnett Duster, in 1970. It's called Crusade for Justice, the autobiography of Ida B. Wells. Um, and then she left behind this heroic legacy of social and political activism. And since her death, numerous awards have been established in her name and the Ida B. Wells Memorial Foundation and the Ida B. Wells Museum have been established to protect, preserve and promote her legacy. And this past month in May of 2020, Ida B. Wells Barnett was posthumously awarded a Pulitzer Prize. 
No. Yeah. I can't. The highest award given in print journalism. She got a special citation for outstanding and courageous reporting. Fuck yeah. How amazing is that? It's about time. It's fucking right. A month ago. (laughs) In 2019, Congress Parkway in Chicago. I didn't fucking know this. Was renamed Ida B. Wells Drive. Congress Parkway. Wow. Is renamed Ida B. Wells Drive. And the home that she and her family lived in was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1974 and a Chicago Landmark in 1995. And her great-granddaughter, Michelle Dester, who find her on Twitter, uh, she's awesome (laughs) as well, has published two collections of Ida's original works, Ida in Her Own Voice and Ida from Abroad. And she recently said about her great grandmother, quote, the only thing she really had was the truth. And she used journalism as a tool to not just report what was going on, but she used her skill as a journalist to the best of her ability to impact social change. And that is just a snippet of the incredible story of Ida B. Wells. Wow. That's that was great. Thank you. Great job. I mean, this is not. I'm ashamed to say that this isn't someone I really knew about. There are these incredible people doing incredible things with, with, you know, with no uh, resources. They just yeah. decide to do them because they have to. And it's their calling. And yeah. despite, you know, their parents dying, despite, you know, having to drop out of high school. And in a lot of these podcasts I listen to, they talk about how, like, don't make her the savior because then it makes people who are just normal, everyday people think that they can't add anything and they can't contribute anything. When really it's people who are fucking, you know, normal and use their skills like writing to do incredible things and just don't fucking give up. They yeah. just don't give up. Even when their, yeah. their, their entire business is burned to the ground, they move somewhere where they'll be listened to and start over. It's just she's an incredible woman. Yeah. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant, like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God, yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could, as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant-quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. That was amazing, Georgia. That was, uh, it's embarrassing as a 50-year-old woman to be learning about stuff like this, but better now, better late than never. (laughs) And so inspiring. So inspiring. Yeah. Oh, there was also, my my therapist also said a thing I really liked. There's a, 
a writer named Rebecca Solnit. And mm-hmm. she's saying in times like this, when you feel lost and you're not sure what to do next, instead of looking for, if you look forward and there's nothing that you can see, there's not a path forward, then look back. Mm. L- see what people did in the past, ha- figure out what aligns with your uh, values, mm-hmm. and then take the next right step. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I know. Like, we just have to be helpers. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. just can't. We know, we know we've misstepped and said fucked up shit and done things incorrectly yeah. and all those things where it's just like, and how do you do it now at this crucial time better? How, like, right. at this time, very dire. And well, so it's before like. Before we, we thought that it, intentions were all that mattered. Good intentions yeah. were all that mattered. Yeah. And yeah. now we're learning that intentions are bullshit. You have to fucking <laughs> walk the walk. It's action. At this point, where we are now, it's about action. That's right. Well, and so I was worried about this because I picked this story to do because June is Gay Pride Month. Yeah. So I picked the Stonewall Uprising. Hell yeah. Hell now, fucking yeah. Yes. And also because when I picked this, which was like six days ago, uh-huh. it was like, oh, yeah, you know, uprising and protest. That's cool. It, you know, that was before yeah. the fucking National Guard got called. Yeah. In, whereas, you know, the vibe changed. <laughs> but what's interesting is then going through it and reading it. All these things are connected. This is very much connected to the civil rights movement of the er- earlier in the 60s mm-hmm. and that it was kind of fascinating to actually discover that as I as I was reading through. So um, just to cite some sources here, history.com saved my life on this one. <laughs> I swear to God, that website. Yeah. Like it's re- if you are slightly unsure about anything that has happened in the past, history.com is your place to go. That's right. Information, dates, names, accuracy, documentaries, all ab- everything. All about it. Yeah. yeah. They know their stuff. But you can, you can bring up a very easy to consume kind of, a, you know, like a short article that just gives you everything you need to know. Mm-hmm. It's really well put together. Thank you, history.com. <laughs> um, there's also great uh, articles in Out Magazine, pinknews.co.uk. There's this great article in the Atlantic called An Amazing 1969 Account of the Stonewall Uprising by a writer named Garrett's Frank Ruda. And that was from 2013. It's that's incredible. The detail and is it incre- cool. is incredible. So so we can't really talk about the Stonewall Uprising until we talk about the now historic event that took place nine years before the 1960 Woolworths lunch counter sit-in by the Greensboro Four. Mm. So um, this basically, and for some people, this is, you know, just a history refresher. And for some people, this is new information. Um, so we'll just be real basic about it. This was basically a sit-in that was organized by four black college students named Azel Blair Jr., David Richmond, Franklin McCain, and Joseph McNeil. And they would later go on to say that it was modeled after what they saw Gandhi doing mm. um, in India with the British colonialism. But the reason that they took the action was because five years earlier, 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till Mm -hmm. was murdered in Money, Mississippi for allegedly flirting with a white woman who was a cashier at the store where he was buying bubble gum. So relatives of this woman heard that that a 14-year-old black boy had flirted with her, went 
went to the family member's house. He was actually from Chicago. He had just come down to Mississippi to stay with some family. And they kidnapped him out of the house and beat him to death. 14-year-old boy. And he looks like a baby. The pictures of him. He looks looks like he's 10. Um, His murderers were arrested, tried, and then acquitted by an all-white male jury after 67 minutes of deliberation. And then a year later, those same men that were acquitted... Uh, because they were protected by double jeopardy, confessed to the crimes <gasps> in an article for Look magazine, and they were paid four thousand dollars <sighs> for the story. So, oh, fuck. The wait, wait, hold on. Let's let that sink in. That's fucking insane. It's insane. And then later on, the white woman who was that clerk said he never because one of the rumors it was he flirted with her and he touched her hand and she later in in like 2018 or 2017 she later said right before she died he never touched me and whatever he did that he did not deserve what he got but of course you know i'd like to retract i'd like to retract saying that it's insane because that wasn't insane for the times that was it was not insane for for the times and how much has changed Really? I mean, and yeah. So, and that's kind of the point is like, if we don't talk about these stories and, and we don't, if we don't know these stories already, then we can't understand what people are so infuriated about. Right. So this, the egregiousness of this, because this happened in 1955. It wasn't the late 1800s. It wasn't even 1930. It was 1955. So this was a tipping point for lots and lots of, especially young black people in the South. So on February 1st, 1960, the Greensboro Four went to their local Woolworths, which was segregated. It was a whites only lunch counter. And they sat down and they tried to order. They, of course, refused service because they were black. So they just then sat there peacefully and refused to leave. The police were called, but they actually couldn't really arrest them because they weren't doing, they weren't disturbing the peace. They were just sitting there. And also because these four men were smart enough to be in cahoots with a white business owner who was helping them out, um, who knew they were going to do this. Mm -hmm. And that white business owner, the second he knew that they were in there doing it, called the press. So the press showed up to report what was happening, thus keeping everyone honest, thus making sure that the police knew that this was going to be reported as it happened. Yeah. If you see people getting pissed off that, you know, that journalists are being fucking shot with rubber bullets and gassed and fucking arrested, it's because they're not supposed to be. It's that's just not how it works. And also what a lot of people are, you know, I've seen this retweeted a ton of times that one of the checkpoints of of knowing an authoritarian regime is taking over is they vilifying the press and trying to get rid of the press because the press for as much as they, you know, we can talk about what the problems in the media, but the essentially they're there to keep people honest. They're there to tell the truth of what's happening and to make sure that people understand the truth of what's happening. Um, And the whole assault on, on the, media with this fake news bullshit of this administration has just made people go, well, I don't have to believe what I'm reading and therefore I choose not to and therefore I get to live in this other fantasy world. Right. And now there's stormtroopers on the fucking Lincoln Memorial. Okay. So (laughs) what a brilliant move that was by these four men to go make sure the press is there. Okay. So they stay there all night. 
Woolworths closes, they leave. They go back the next day. There's more people mm. at this sit-in. And four days later, uh, in addition to the Greensboro Four, the original four protesters, 300 people <sighs> are sitting at this Woolworths asking to be served. And... Um, so at this point now, it's become national news. In just that short amount of time, they're saying something is happening here. And there, there were people like at this point, a lot of the people who participated in this protest were arrested for disorderly conduct, trespassing and disturbing the peace mm -hmm. because this was such a defiant act, just simply sitting. And when they're being told to leave or you can't be in here, I'm sure abused horribly verbally, they just didn't do it. It mm -hmm. was just that act of simple act of defiance of I'm not getting up from here. And so people were definitely arrested. But by this time, it was national news. It was on TV, which was with then right. sparked which was new at the time too to be actually witnessing this stuff on tv correct yes. me if i'm wrong but like every family having a tv in their household wasn't it was kind of a new thing yes for sure and then that it isn't um it, like we were saying before people can't it, it's they're just sitting there mm -hmm. so you can't argue they're asking for it right. they did something all they're saying is this shouldn't be whites only segregation and these jim crow laws need to get we need to get rid of them they're so old and it's so um it's it's basically killing this country it's 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 not a, it sh it's not how america should be um so at that point it sparks a trend of sit-ins in college towns across the south so it's now it's not just greensboro it's now across the south and by the end of the summer of 1960 not only that Woolworths, but many other segregated businesses across the south become integrated mm. and that is essentially the um the kickoff of the civil rights movement uh, on the national stage and it's because of those four men who basically had the guts to sit there um quietly and and just keep showing up mm -hmm. so six years later on april 21st 1966 inspired by the greensboro four three members of a um a group called the Mattachine Society, which is one of the earliest gay rights organizations in America. Um, and there are three guys named Andy Wickler, Dick Leitch, and Craig Rodwell. They stage what they call a sip-in. Nice play on words. Love that. So in the 60s, if you were gay, you could actually be charged with being quote-unquote disorderly just for being served alcohol in a bar. Mm. So... That meant that it was legal to deny service to anyone that the bartender or anyone thought was gay. And the cops could arrest anyone at a bar if they suspected that they were gay. Or, to use the word that was used at the time, a transvestite. That's what people called themselves back then. Mm -hmm. So that, that word comes up a little bit, which now is problematic, but it was actually the parlance of the time. So, so these three guys, Andy Wickler, Dick Leitch, and Craig Rodwell, they decide they're going to go into bars in Greenwich Village and ask to be served drinks and then, um, and basically do the same thing of like get denied and then, in, you know, so um, they actually went to two bars first that served them because they didn't seem overtly gay. Right. 
to those bartenders. And then they got to Julius. So they had to leave because they were like, nope, that sipping didn't work. <laughs> they finally get to Julius's bar in Greenwich Village and they tell the bartender they're gay and they would like to order some drinks. The bartender says, you can't get out. Mm-hmm. In part because Julius's three days before had been raided. So mm. they're like, we don't want any trouble. The cops, you know, the cops are just in here. So basically now these three guys have proof that they're being discriminated against and now they can take action against the state liquor authority mm. and now they can actually take this to the courts and when they do they have, there's a court case that ultimately makes this type of disorderly charge against gay people illegal so they couldn't they couldn't be arrested simply for drinking in a bar anymore okay um, and it's interesting, like, if you're interested in this, look into it because they, the, some of those laws were started because the mayor of New York City at the time, they had the, the World's Fair was in 1964, mm-hmm. and they tried to do a sweep of the city and get rid of all overtly gay, mm. like, people, bars, gathering places, like, because all the tourists were going to come in and God forbid. Right. Did you, real quick, did you watch A Secret Love on Netflix? No, I've, I haven't heard of it. It's really good. It's a documentary about these two women. They're lesbians and their relationship. But it talks a lot about their only friends back at the time were other gay couples in the 60s and 70s because you were not allowed to go to bars. So they would just like hang out at their houses and have parties. But it's a really good documentary. A Secret Love. Secret Love? Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. But as we all know, just because you change the law, that does not mean you change society or the way society decides to look at, at people who are marginalized. So despite this little bit of progress, gay, transgender and other queer people still have almost nowhere they can go and just to overtly and out be themselves in a safe environment with this, with the exception of like a handful of gay bars in Greenwich Village, uh, which which is where a ton of queer people lived at the time in the mm-hmm. city. Um so the gay bars that that people knew were gay bars operate very discreetly because New York New York City refused to grant or New York State sorry refused to grant liquor license to gay bars. So basically they're they're trying to get rid of gay bars by making the operation itself illegal so that the police can justify raiding these bars and arresting queer people. Mm. But even still these bars, you know, uh, they serve as safe havens for the surrounding gay and queer communities. So um, most notable of these bars is the Stonewall Inn at 51 and 53 Christopher Street. So uh, three members, and this is fascinating to me, three members of the Genovese mafia crime family buy the building in 1966. And it had been a, a straight restaurant and nightclub and they change it into a gay one. Wow. Because they know that there's money to be yeah. made in illegal gay bars w- where they're paying off the cops and everything is like under the table. Totally. So to keep a low overhead, the building is bare bones. Walls are painted black. They're lined with colored lights. There's no running water behind the bar. <laughs> Plumbing in the bathrooms constantly backs up. When cr- uh, customers get to the front door, there's a bouncer that looks at them through a peephole. And the only people allowed inside are people who are overtly, <laughs> it's as visibly gay. Wow. <laughs> visibly gay. For example, like um, men who are, who are dressed femme. Um, or people who the bouncer already knows. Yeah. So it's almost like a private club in yeah. that way. It costs $3 to get in. And then that is also two dr- worth two drink tickets once you get inside. Nice. Um, and the main draw of the Stonewall Inn is that they allow dancing in addition to drinking, oh. which 
other gay bars did not allow. Because it because it's men dancing together or women dancing together, which yeah. is overtly it's gay. too and, overt. Right. Exactly. Oh. Which is a, also a thing that ha- uh, later on, and, and I won't get too into it because it's very, it's very interesting, but I don't know enough about it to talk about. But essentially, there is division. Once, once gay rights and that that movement start up, there's lots of division within of how you're supposed to behave. Right. Which is you know, expected and common, but it's really interesting. So it's like, we just want to be accepted. So act like this. Yeah. And then there's other groups that are going, fuck that shit. Yeah. Um, which I personally love. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I always love those people the most. So the other draw for the, or the other draw for Stonewall is that it's, it welcomes queer people of all races and even mm. underage queer kids um, because it's so common back then if people's families found out they were gay they'd just get kicked out of the house right. and they literally lived on the streets in New York City most of them would go to the big city thinking they would be accepted there and um, so that was a that was a big part of it too homeless gay kids which is you know s- still a big uh, issue today Um but, you know, especially back then when it was like, you you know, just you, it was unthinkable. Right. And so and parents felt very justified in just cutting their child off. Crazy. Um, so it's actually an even mix at the Stonewall and it's an even mix of white, black and brown um, people ranging in ages from late teens to mid 30s. Um, and of course, for the homeless youth with nowhere else to go and for other queer people who have been cast aside by all the people that are supposed to love them, the Stonewall becomes a, a home for a lot of these people, a true home, not a second home, their only home. And mm-hmm. other than that, they live on the streets. Mm-hmm. It's a refuge. Um, it's a beautiful line. Jay wrote this. It serves as a refuge from the world that refuses to acknowledge their humanity. So, <laughs> oh, Jay. One such, <laughs> Jay, good job. Um, one such patron of the Stonewall Inn is a drag queen, a transgender woman named Marsha P. Johnson. Okay. So, Marsha P. Johnson was born in 1945 in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um, and she starts wearing dresses when she's five years old, mm-hmm. which made me laugh so hard. It makes me think of my beautiful friend, Dave Mesmer, who he has pictures of himself wearing his sister's slip. This picture of him in a slip is what, <laughs> and he used to talk, he used to tell me about it and go, my slip, my slip. Cause he would wear it constantly. Wow. And like his mom would be like, Hey, don't you want to wear, take the slip off? We're going to the store. And he's like, I have to wear my slip. <laughs> And it's like, it's the best, it's that thing of like, if you have any question about nature versus nature, you need to see this picture and Dave and his slip. (laughs) It's the realness. It's the true realness. Okay. So anyway, so when Marsha finally does graduate from high school, she gets, gets out of Elizabeth, New Jersey, runs off to New York City with just a bag of clothes and $15. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, she gets by doing sex work, barely managing to survive on the streets, but she gets to be herself finally for the first time wearing dresses, loud colors, flowers and fruit and Christmas lights in her hair. (laughs) Yes. And Christmas lights. Yeah. Legend. Early legend. Yeah. Um, Marsha P. Johnson. So when and when people ask her what the P in her name stands for, she always says, pay it no mind. (laughs) So genius. Um, So she's met, of course, with 
tons of violence, outrage from just the general public. But when she's in places like Stonewall, she finds her chosen family, other queens and queers and gays who accept her for who she is. Mm -hmm. And she's an incredibly open, optimistic, friendly person, if you're friendly to her. Mm -hmm. And she maintains her Christian religion. She's often seen praying for her friends at local churches. Mm. And she this killed me. This quote, she says, Jesus, quote, is the only man I could really trust. (laughs) He listened to me and he never laughed at me. Yeah. And some people even call her St. Marcia because she's so generous and so lovely. Mm. Now, so someone who benefits from Marcia's generosity is a a young Latinx queen named Sylvia Rivera. So Sylvia's father left her family when she was a baby. And then her mother committed suicide when she was three. As a kid, she lived with her grandmother, but then when she would dress up in her grandmother's clothes and makeup, Mm -hmm. her grandmother would beat her. So when she turns 11, she runs away and lives on the streets of New York City. Yeah. Horrifying, but it's such a sadly common story. Yeah. She meets Marsha in 1963 while she's also working as a sex worker. She said, quote, Marsha was like a mother to me. Um, and she says that Marsha always looked out for her, gave her a semblance of stability and loved her like no one else ever had. Aww. So, OK, so those are just we need to meet those two key players And now we go to the night of Saturday, June 28th, 1969. Mm -hmm. That night, there's about 200 people at the Stonewall Inn, um, partying, dancing, doing their thing. It's one of the only places that they can go to drink and dance and just be their fabulous selves freely. Yeah. This bar does not have a liquor license. Um, As as I said, they're controlled by the Genovese crime family. Love it. So, hey, those guys... Love it. <laughs> I just love it. it. Because, you know, you can pretend yeah. that that means that they are doing it because they support right. love gay people, no, no, which no, no, no. is not true. No. But so basically they pay off the local cops and to stay in business. Mm-hmm. So purely for appearances, the cops have to raid the bar every once in a while to make it look like it's all above board. Uh-huh. And normally what happens is... Um, one of the mobsters gives the bar owners a heads up. Right. They don't, I feel like a Saturday night wouldn't be a normal time to do it either. I don't know. Well, no, no I mean, not according to this story because, yeah. yeah, normally they get the heads up that the cops are coming and then they hide the booze and they tell all the customers. So anybody that has to leave because they're not out or yeah. they're at risk in some way can run. Well, this time there's no warning. So around 1.20 in the morning, four undercover police and four cops in uniform raid the Stonewall Inn. Mm. And even though everyone's surprised, raids are so common back then that the employees and the customers kind of know the drill. Mm -hmm. So basically, they have to line up while the cop checks everybody's ID. And then anyone that's, quote, dressed like a woman is taken to the bathroom and checked to, quote, verify their sex. No. Yeah. So demeaning. So, such, so gross. So, and then basically anyone who is wearing women's clothing but doesn't have female genitalia is arrested. Jesus. There's a video of them being, like, herded into the paddy wagon, too, right? Outside of, like... I don't know if there's video. I've definitely seen pictures. There's amazing pictures because, well, yeah, so... um, 
And there, there's a lot of pictures in this, uh, that Atlantic article that I mentioned mm-hmm. um, that are great because there's some people who are, are enraged and screaming. But then there's, there's people kind of in the back row that are kind of like laughing and cheering because the thing becomes this event. Yeah. You know? So, okay. So this is what happened. So basically this time there, everyone's fucking sick of it where it's like these raids happen all the time and they're coming into like their clubhouse basically yeah. you know they're the one spot they have so a lot of the queer patrons just refuse to hand over their ids or go willingly with these arresting officers to go get quote-unquote checked mm. so in the response to the refusals the police start of course abusing the stonewall patrons so they're dragging they're getting really physical dragging people away to arrest them they're frisking customers that they know are lesbians so they're groping <gasps> them and molesting them right so it's so tension escalates very quickly Meanwhile, the police are also confiscating all the booze they can find, which is like 28 cases of beer, 19 bottles of hard liquor. But it's so much that they have to call for a second paddy wagon to come and haul it away, Mm -hmm. along with these people they're planning to arrest. They release anyone that's not under arrest, and then they force all the arrested patrons to wait. But the people who are released just stand around outside waiting to see what's going to happen because they're they're not just going to like run which i really love so then there's people passing by the bar who notice what's going on and they stop to join the group outside Mm -hmm. and they see what's happening that it's this raid and that they're you know these cops are getting uh violent and it's that it's not this the normal like what they expect with the stonewall inn is like they do the quote-unquote raid and then they go through the motions and everything's fine because they're paying you know they're being paid off to do that but now all of a sudden it's all different so the group starts is like like not cool with it obviously and they start mocking the police they're doing fake salutes they're yelling shit at them they're leaning into the femme behavior they're doing limp wrists and primping their hair yeah um they're also making fun of the police they're you know they're they're directly mocking the police in their faces and doing all this really overt shit that normally it's like they've normally if it was a raid they're shamed into right you know running away not showing their faces or whatever well the officers start shoving the patrons out of their way and the patrons start pushing back and this tension starts building and at one point they very forcefully throw a butch lesbian named stormy delarvery and they throw her into the paddy wagon Mm -hmm. and as they do she yells to the crowd why don't you guys do something Mm. and so they do (laughs) And suddenly rocks, bottles and bricks are being thrown at the police. The police are using excessive force to try to restrain the crowd, but they're completely outnumbered because now the crowd has very quickly grown um, and is a, a very quickly involved. Yeah. Um, a, some of the patrons who have been handcuffed that were supposed to be arrested get away. What? One of the patrons suggests that maybe the cops showed up because the owners hadn't paid them off yet so another one yells let's pay them off and they start throwing pennies at the cops oh fuck and um part of the group tries to flip the paddy wagon over (laughs) while other people run around and slash the tires of the cop cars so there's officers the officers driving those cop cars jump into them and drive away with flat tires because they know they're they know they're they're um outnumbered Uh the the cops that stay grab a bunch of the patrons that are handcuffed and they go back inside the stone wall and, and basically barricade themselves in. Hmm. 
Now that move itself is, is, is one of the reasons things escalated even further because, and they, and I'll read this quote, um, from that Atlantic article about how basically the cops were humiliated because normally they have such a hold over and, and have such a power over the quote unquote fairies, which is what they were called back in the day. Mm -hmm. So the idea that all these people who they are, were used to being shamed and hiding their face and, you know, oh my God, I'm being arrested for this. And it's so terrible. Now they're just like, no, fuck you. And they're, the police are so scared. They have to run back into the bar. They're being humiliated for the, yeah, probably the first time like this doesn't happen especially back then they're fucking with the power structure and that's when that's when the people with the power get scared and mad Uh uh-huh so so essentially the they're not sure how either the crowd or the police inside set the building on fire fuck we don't know so they're they're not sure because it could have been the crowd outside to make the police come back out but there's also a theory that the cops inside did it because they were destroying the inside of the stone wall in anyway yeah because they had they smashed the um, jukebox they were doing all kinds of shit inside Mm -hmm. so they're like well then they probably lit lit it on fire also but then the logic of that is like but they're in there right so they don't know for sure there's also a lot of debate Surrounding who threw the first object, because a lot of people attribute it to Sylvia Rivera, um, but she's later quoted saying, quote, I threw the second one. I did not throw the first. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sticking to that. That's everyone's, you guys, that's our story from now on. I threw the second one. I threw the second one. Others say Marsha P. Johnson threw the first brick, but she later goes on record to say she wasn't there until 2 a.m. when the building was already on fire. I love that she shows up fashionably late to a riot. She's like, what? Girls, what's going on? (laughs) So the most important thing is that the uprising at the Stonewall Inn can't be credited to just one person because it really is about the collective effort of this oppressed community um, at primarily black and brown transgender or non-gender conforming people who have been pushed to their limits and have the, like one of the only things they even have in the world taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And that's what sparks this uprising. So basically everyone there is prepared to defend their home. And especially this is the mm. era of the civil rights movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement, um, a general counterculture influence. The queer people of New York City are fired up and they've had enough of the shitty treatment. So as the fight rages on, the tactical patrol force, the TPF, which is basically the NYPD's riot control unit, they arrive to fight back against the crowd and then and free the police that are inside Stonewall. Um, so they basically they form this formation to try to drive the crowd back to get away from the Stonewall Inn. But of course, now this crowd is on fire and so they're cheering they're mocking the police instead of retreating they form like a showgirl st- a style kick line Shit. and they start doing a kick line and no. singing singing at the cops a legit kick line yo yeah bob kohler who is a local gay rights activist was there that night and describes what he witnessed oh my god oh my quote, god quote I had been in enough riots to know the fun was over. The cops were totally humiliated. Uh This never, ever happened. They were angrier than I guess they had ever been because everybody else had rioted, but the fairies were not supposed to riot. Uh No group had ever forced cops to retreat before, so the anger was just enormous. Yeah. End quote. Masculine fragility. 
So, furious and embarrassed, the police rush the crowd, pummeling them again with excessive force. By 4 a.m., the streets are mostly cleared, and the Stonewall Inn is destroyed from the inside out. And they, and basically, the cops inside that had been basically, they just ripped everything down. They basically were just basically trying to shut the place down for good. Like, there will be nothing left. Is anyone dead in the fire? Mm-mm. Okay. No. Not that I know. So 13 people are arrested. Some are hospitalized for their injuries. Uh, Four officers are hurt, but it's minor. The next day, they continue protesting. Uh So people, supporters go and they spray paint things like drag power and legalize gay bars. And we are open on the outside of the burnt out Stonewall Inn. And so now it's it's Saturday, June 28th. And they, the Stonewall actually does open, but this time it's, there's no bouncer. There's no people. It's people just standing out in the open and it's thousands of people gathering in the streets. Around this bar. The crowd stretches out to the surrounding blocks in this neighborhood. So the police arrive on the scene and they're met with more opposition. At one point, Marsha P. Johnson climbs a lamppost and drops a bag with a brick in it onto the hood (gasps) of a cop car. That's probably why she got the credit for throwing the first brick, because she that second night she got up there and fucking went for it. Um, And I think there is a picture of her on that lamppost, if I'm I'm not mistaken. Um, But the battle between queer people and the police continues till 4 a.m. with um, several more arrests. And in total, the Stonewall uprising lasts six days. And it's a mix of peaceful protest, looting, destruction of property, and total freedom of expression. Six days in that neighborhood. Six days. Holy shit. And obviously, like, uh, if day two there's thousands of people, it's like an event. Wow. Um, So by the time the uprising settles down, major news outlets have picked up on this story and they've made it clear to anyone who's watching, the queers will have their liberation come hell or high water. And the effects start taking hold immediately. So there's people who once felt hopeless and now they're emboldened. There's gay demonstrations. Um, you see gay couple holding hands out, you know, just out and about, which wow. did not happen before this. Uh-huh. Um, people dressing totally out of control, like any way they wanted. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say out of control, but like people yeah. actually dressing the way they wanted and without the fear of, oh, if somebody sees me, that I can somehow be arrested for disorderly conduct yeah. just because I'm dressed like this. So clearly, this community, they're done with being in the closet and toning themselves down to make straight people feel comfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. In a matter of months, gay and queer newspapers are cropping up around the city. They're called, one's called Gay, one's called Come Out with an exclamation point, (laughs) and one's called Gay Power. And their popularity and readership steadily climbs. Okay, so this is, this is kind of amazing. This is a, this is a quote from that article from The Atlantic an amazing 1969 account of the Stonewall Uprising um, written by Garrett's Frank Ruda. But what's incredible is Dick Leish, who is one of the three guys who did the sip-in. Yes. He was uh, he was g- um, planning a trip to London, um, but he saw what was happening and went down there so he could report on it. Oh, Wow. Yes, um, because he was a uh, he was also a journalist. And oh, nice. so, he, yeah, so he went down. So this is just a portion. There's a big, long um, part of what he wrote in this article. But I just pulled this portion of it because it's really cool. So 
So this is what Dick Leitch wrote about the Stonewall Uprising. Quote, since 1965, the homosexual community of New York has been treated quite well by the city administration and the police have either reformed or been kept in line by Lindsay and Leary. Now we've walked in the open and know how pleasant it is to have self-respect and to be treated as citizens and human beings. We want to stay in the sunlight from now on. Mm. Efforts to force us back in the closet could be disastrous for all concerned. The above, while a true evaluation of the situation does not explain while the raid on Stonewall caused such a strong reaction. Why the Stonewall and not the sewer or the snake pit, which were other gay bars yeah, in they the were. area? <laughs> okay. The answer lies, we believe, in the unique nature of the Stonewall. This club was more than a dance bar, more than just a gay gathering place. It catered largely to a group of people who are not welcome in or cannot afford other places of homosexual social gathering. The, the quote drags and the quote queens, two groups which would find a chilly reception or a barred door at most of the other gay bars and clubs, mm. formed the regulars at the Stonewall. To a large extent, the club was for them. Apart from the gold bug and the one two three yeah <laughs> those yeah. are other bars yeah. i love it drags and queens had no place but the stonewall another group was even more dependent on the stonewall the very young homosexuals and those with no other homes mm -hmm. you've got to be 18 to buy a drink in a bar and gay life revolved around bars where do you go if you are 17 or 16 and gay? The legitimate bars wouldn't let you in the place and gay restaurants and the streets aren't very sociable. Then too, there are hundreds of young homosexuals in New York who literally have no home. Most of them are between 16 and 25 and came here from other places without jobs, money or contacts. Many of them are running away from unhappy homes. One boy told us, quote, my father called me cocksucker so many times I thought it was my name. Oh, Jesus. Another said his parents fought so much over which of them made him a homosexual that he left so they could learn to live together. Mm. Some got thrown out of school or the service for being gay and couldn't face going home. Some were even thrown out of their homes with only the clothes on their backs by ignorant, intolerant parents who'd rather see their kid dead than homosexual. They came to New York with the clothes on their backs. Some of them hustled or had skills enough to get a job. Others weren't attractive enough to hustle and did didn't manage to fall in with people who could help them. Some of them, giddy at the openness of gay life in New York, got caught up in it, and some are on pills and drugs. Some are still wearing the clothes in which they came here a year or more ago. Mm. Jobless and without skills, without decent clothes to wear or to a job interview, they live in the streets, panhandling or shoplifting for the price of admission to the Stonewall. That was one advantage to the place. For $3 admission, one could stay inside out of the winter's cold or the summer heat all night long. Not only was the Stonewall better climactically, but it also saved the kids from spending the night in a doorway or from getting arrested as vagrants. $3 isn't too hard to get panhandling and nobody hustled drinks in the Stonewall. Once the admission price was paid, one could drink or not as he chose. The Stonewall became home to these kids. When it was raided, they fought for it. That and the fact that they had nothing to lose other than the most tolerant, broad-minded gay place in town explains why the Stonewall riots were begun, led, and spearheaded by Queens. 
That is Sorry. amazing. That was long, but it's no, so worth it. Necessary. Yeah. Because never- it's that it's Dick Lightshoe. It's like they're basically saying there's a caste system within this community. Yeah. And and you and you actually went to the one place. You can't take that you can't take the one thing people have away from them. And then they no. have nothing to lose. Don't then ever fucking never never fucking underestimate the underdogs and the fucking discounted and the people who have already struggled their whole fucking lives. Yeah, this they're is not nothing scared. new. This is nothing they're, new. They're so brave. They're so yeah, exactly. They know how to fight. Yeah. Okay, so there's some members of the gay community, including Marsha P. Johnson, founded the Gay Liberation Front, which was an activist group dedicated to liberating the gay people of America. This group gives way to more groups like it across America and into Canada. Mm. And in the immediate aftermath, um, there are some gays who say they don't agree w- with what happened at Stonewall. And this is where groups like the Mattachine Society um, fall apart because their efforts have always been to show straight people that gay people are, quote, right. just like them. And so they want gays to fit in with the straights and assimilate to their culture. But queer people involved in Stonewall opera- uprising were saying assimilation plays into the oppressor's hand. Basically, the beautiful thing about this is is being able to be your genuine self full stop not with not trying to meet the expectations of anybody else and that's what transgender activists like Marsha and Sylvia start fighting for which is the freedom to be yourself whatever that is so they make it a point to continue the work in the years following Stonewall um, in 1970 Sylvia and Marsha start an organization called Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries which supports queer youth in New York City by 1972 they've pulled together enough money to purchase a house which which they call the star house, mm-hmm. which is the acronym for the street transvestite action revolutionaries. Love it. And they, u- they use this house to ho- house homeless queer youth and Sylvia and Marsha fund the house through sex work so that the kids who live there don't have to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. The star organization also jumps um, into other equal rights and anti-police brutality causes around the city, marching in protests and supporting um, other marginalized people in any way they can. But as they head into the early 70s, more and more people start to peel themselves away from transgender, gender queer causes. The gay liberation movement starts to think about trans rights as being too difficult to attain. So they separate from activists like Marsha and Sylvia and huh. Sylvia and uh, to give the thinking was to give gay causes a better chance. Oh. Then at the Gay Pride March in 1973, Sylvia tries to make a speech, but is repeatedly blocked by other gay activists. And she eventually grabs the mic and yells, if it wasn't for the drag queens, there would be no gay liberation movement. We're the frontliners. So shortly after that, she attempts suicide, but Marsha finds her and saves her life. So the Stonewall Uprising very quickly gives way to the gay rights movement and pride celebrations that now start taking place all around the world. On June 28th, 1970, the queer community in New York City gathers outside of Stonewall for the first annual Christopher Street Liberation Day. They commemorate the Stonewall Uprising with a march and um, Los Angeles and Chicago follow suit with their own marches. And uh, also San Francisco, um, that same year, San Francisco has they they have a what they call a sit-in um they march down polk street and then they have a sit-in themselves Mm -hmm. um 
In the next year, Boston, Dallas, Milwaukee, and even Paris, London, West Berlin, and Stockholm all host pride marches of their own. Every year, the number of participating cities grows until we reach the Pride Month celebrations as we know them today. But as we celebrate pride, it's important to remember that we're able to celebrate this in the first place because black and brown, trans, genderqueer, and queens like Marsha and Sylvia and more fought for everyone's liberation. And that is a very rudimentary report on the legendary protest that was the Stonewall Uprising. Wow. I did not know those details at all. That is amazing. Isn't that crazy? I mean, this is so... There's so much more to yeah. know and learn and so many details and but um you know cliff notes it's a, it's a it's a start but I mean I kind of do love this is all, it all folds together. Yeah. There's a lot of brave people out there and what we're seeing happening right now in front of us has happened before. It doesn't have to be as scary um as it can sometimes feel. Because if you look back in the past, there have been people who have been so brave in such insanely oppressive times. Mm -hmm. And if we can know these stories and talk about those stories, we can we can steal a little bit of their bravery and, and take it to now so we can, so we can do our work. And it's it's really inspiring to see that those uh, brave people have made changes. So what we're going through right now and the fear and anxiety and stress of it all and and it's so scary but it's for a cause and it and it works and in the past it's worked and um that's why it's happening not just it's not for nothing that's right and it's and it is about this is about actually having respect for human life this is not it's not about teaching people a lesson it's not about being anti this group or anti that group it's like you cannot keep on killing black people with nothing and having nothing happen because of it yeah that's that's what's happening today but that's also it has been happening for so long right yeah yeah just black lives matter black lives matter everybody um great job we really want to hear your fucking hoorays from the past week and what uh what's been going on for you and your wins, please email us at my favorite murder at Gmail or tweet at us or uh, comment on our Instagram um, and let us know, you know, how, how this has affected you and what, and what you're doing to help the yeah. people that it's, that it affects in the, in the real day to day. Cause that's, that's, what's exciting is the watching people really come together. Right. Thanks you guys for listening. Stay safe, stay strong. Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, you want a cookie? <laughs> <laughs>